Alrighty. As we were, uh, actually, as we were going through the announcements, um, I was just reminded of, of Jesus when he says, you know, that people will know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another. And um, every time that I come here, my family and I visit and uh, have the opportunity to share with you guys, um, that verse always comes to mind because you guys love each other so well. Um, it's an example that I wish we saw more of in the church today, but the way that you guys write your prayer requests and take the time out of a service to actually go before God on behalf of one another is, is amazing, and I'm just really grateful for you. I'm really grateful for the way you continually welcome me, welcome my family, and um, express the truth that you are Jesus' disciples because of the way that you love each other. And so just thank you so much. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Chris Wilson. I'm a teacher over at Western Christian High School. We call this campus Little Western. I'm not sure how much they like that, but uh, I work over in Upland. And so again, just thank you so much for the opportunity to come and share with you this morning. So you know, um, you know that weird, like fancy way of drawing a symbol for the word and, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's called an ampersand. It's kind of a funny word, but the ampersand for, for our, my family and I, we've kind of adopted that to be like a, like a symbol for our family. Like if our family had a logo of some kind, it'd probably be an ampersand. And the reason why is because whenever you've got an and there in a sentence, there's always gonna be more after that. You never end a sentence on and, right? And so for us as a family, we've adopted the mentality that just like with the ampersand, there's gonna be more. When it comes to God, there's always more. Every single time. Like when, when it comes to God, there's always more life to be lived. There's more joy to be had, more community to be shared, more love to experience. And, and even when this life comes to an end, there's always more. You get the idea? Well, as we jump into today's passage, I want us to approach it with that same kind of mentality. There's always more. The reason why I preface the message this way is because for a lot of us, myself included, we can oftentimes approach certain passages in scripture and we can think they don't really have much to say, or at least they, they don't have all that much to say to us in our context today. Uh, on one hand, maybe it feels like the information that we're reading, you know, it, like it's there, but maybe it's not necessary, right? Or maybe it had significance for the original readers. Like, yeah, Paul wrote this letter, but he was specifically talking to that church. It doesn't really matter or apply to us now today. Or on the other hand, we've become comfortable in church and we've become comfortable with scripture. And so we've, we've read the verse and we've, we've, we've seen the words and, you know, like we understand it. We know what there is to, to be said about it and there, there isn't really much there anymore. We've become so familiar that certain words or certain verses or entire passages start to lose their meaning and we just, I don't know, like we don't really give it a whole lot of thought. Now I would hope to think that none of us would actually say that certain passages of scripture aren't important, but at least in practice, I'm pretty sure that all of us have had moments or times where we've, we've opened up the Bible We've kind of skimmed our way through what we were reading without really stopping to think, like, man, what it, like how, how many times have I ever had that? How many of you ever had that experience where you open up the Bible, you, you sit down, you read, you stand up, and you forgot every single word that you literally just read because we never stopped to think about what it was we were reading? Well, if we're, caref if we're not careful, passages like the one we're in today can, can totally fall into this trap. If you've got a Bible with you, we're gonna be going through Matthew chapter four, verses 12 through 17. 
And so as we, we read this verse, these verses, these, this passage, it can be like, what, like, why on earth should I care about these random lands and regions that I can't pronounce, right? Well, like out of everything Jesus could have said about the kingdom of God, why is it that here in Matthew 4, 17, he just says, repent. Like really, like in other places, it makes a lot more sense. He says a whole lot about the kingdom of God and its implications for our lives. But here it's just, the, our responses boil down to one word. And it's repent? Like, what's the point? On the surface, it doesn't even seem like there's a whole lot of depth or applicability for us today in these verses. But that's why I'm pleading with you. We've got to stop stop and ask, is there in fact more? Well, to start to to answer the question of why these types of verses are even included in the Gospels in the first place, I think Matthew tells us the answer right in the middle of the passage itself. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And here it is. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he goes on to quote uh, what Isaiah said in chapters 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali... The way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Gal- or Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is a simple truth, but it's so essential for all of us to remember that every single word of scripture is written with remarkable intentionality. Okay, like God through human artists wrote the words of the, that we read in the Bible with incredible purpose and intention behind every single last one of them. In fact, Jesus himself speaking of the Old Testament and his role in fulfilling it says this. He says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying that that there is not a single word that lacks meaning or will lose its meaning until God brings to fulfillment his plan of redemption and reconciles all things to himself. You see, the same weight of Jesus' words about the importance of all of Scripture could be applied not just to the law, not just to the prophets, not just to the Old Testament, but to the New Testament as well. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 3.16 that, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And then 2 Peter 3.16 equates the writings of Paul with these scriptures that Jesus was talking about. This implies that, that all the writings, like Paul's writings, the New Testament writings, all of it is divinely inspired, breathed out by God down to every iota, every single dot, all of it breathed out by God and has purpose and benefits us. There's meaning and depth and weight to every single one, even Matthew 12 or Matthew 4 verses 12 through 16, which to us might just seem like Jesus went there. Cool, right? And so as you go through the book of Matthew, you'll, you'll consistently see sections that in most Bibles are either indented or centered, right? Is it like that in your Bible right now? Um, and what, what's going on there is Matthew's quoting from the Old Testament and over and over throughout the gospels, you'll see phrases like what was written by the prophet, you know, so-and-so here, Isaiah, might be fulfilled. See, every single time he does this, it's to serve a purpose. It's because Matthew, as well as the other gospel writers, wanna drive home this one point, okay? In their minds, 
The purpose of Jesus' life and the, the purpose of Jesus' ministry was in order to make good on each and every one of the promises and the predictions that were made about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 9, God promised that these people who were far from God, living in spiritual darkness, would have the light of the world one day dwell in their midst. Here in Matthew 4, God is bringing that promise to fulfillment. See, this is the reason for Matthew including what to us might seem like unnecessary geographic information. As if one day, 2,000 years later, somebody would be sitting in the living room like, oh man, like, I'm really excited to read Jesus' itinerary today. Like there's something more to it than just that. See, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is taking the story of the Old, Te Old Testament and he's pointing us to the reality that its culmination is found in him. That thou for thousands and thousands of years, these people, God's people, had been awaiting this Messiah. And for, for thousands of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, these people were in anticipation for God to break them free from their bondage, not just to, to Rome or to other people, Babylon throughout other you know, times, but to break them free from the bondage of sin and the weight of the fall. And now, through Jesus, God's making good on this promise. And so when we see these passages that we might wanna just throw away, we've gotta realize there's, there's more to it. And it's not just Matthew and the other gospel writers who are doing this. Over and over throughout the New Testament, the authors frame their message about who Jesus was and what he was accomplishing within the framework of the story of the Old Testament. In Acts 2, as Peter's delivering his very first sermon, he quotes Joel 2, he quotes Psalm 16, he quotes Psalm 100. In his next sermon, just in Acts 3, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 and Genesis 22. In both of these sermons, Peter was doing this to prove that Jesus was, in fact, a messianic king that God's people had been promised and waiting for. In fact, in Acts 10, 43, Peter goes as far as to say that, that all the prophets testify about Jesus. And it's not just Peter either. In, either, in the most, <laughs> Peter either. It's not just Peter either. In the most complete sermon that we have of Paul's in Acts 13, he goes through the history of Israel. And then in verse 23, he says, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus Christ, as he has promised. He then goes on to summarize the message. And he says, we, we tell you the good news. What God promised by our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, when he's, he's looking to remind this church of the gospel, listen to how he starts it off. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Two times in just two verses, Paul is explaining what Jesus has done to pay for the debt of our sin. As he's doing this, he doesn't just talk about it in a vacuum the way that we can be so prone to doing. Instead, he talks about it in relation to the Old Testament scriptures, the promises, the predictions of the awaited Messiah and what he would accomplish. That's the framework that he's working from. Author Scott McKnight goes as far as to say that the apostles' gospel was the story of Jesus resolving the story of Israel. This framing story is so pervasive that we fail the apostolic gospel tradition if we fail to make it our framing gospel story as well. 
So not only is this the framework that the Old Testament writers were anticipating, or the expectations of the Old Testament, not only is it the framework that the New Testament writers are, are, are viewing Jesus through, it's also got to be the framework that we view Jesus and what he is accomplishing through the gospel ourselves. As Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, both to his original first century Jewish audience, but also to our 21st century American context, we have to see that he is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. You see, there's more to this, this passage than just an ancient itinerary of where Jesus went. And understanding this should not only shape and mold the way that we, we approach or, or read the book of, of Matthew or the rest of the New Testament, but also how we faithfully respond to it as we hope to live out the truths that we see presented in the gospel as well. See, I'm convinced this is why Matthew chose to even include verses 12 through 16 in the first place. It's not like he was, you know, me in high school trying to meet a word count on an essay. Like this matters. Every word, every dot is effort. It's intentionality. It's, it's for a purpose. It's not necessarily a purpose that's always obvious to us on the surface, but it, there's meaning and there's depth to it. There's, there's more than what might be just on the surface. See, we, can, we, uh, we have to understand that this is the purpose of, of Matthew writing this. So we can not only understand that this is the story that God has been writing and Jesus' place in it, but also so that we can appropriately respond to this story as well. And there's a lot that could be said about what this actually like, looks like. So when we get down to the nitty gritty of it, like what this practically play, or how this actually plays out in our lives. When it comes to Jesus and the kingdom of God and the, the implications for our lives today, there's a whole lot that could be said. And as you guys continue through the book of Matthew, I'm, I'm confident that, that Brian and, and the other people who will stand up here and share are gonna like, you know, develop that more and more. But in this particular passage, in, in verse 17, Matthew gives us a summary statement of Jesus' teachings and his message. And he tells us what we are to do in light in the kingdom in saying that we should repent. We should repent. And listen, I, I know that for many of us, we hear that word repent and our, like, our back tightens up a little bit, right? Um, for a lot of people, especially in, in, in my generation and younger, the word repent has, has kind of become a little bit of a dirty word. We don't wanna be told to repent. We don't like the feeling of repentance. Even though I'm convinced that Jesus intends for repentance to serve as an invitation to, again, more, greater depths of of life and love and grace. For many of us, this word stirs up feelings of, of guilt and shame. And if that's you, and you find yourself here this morning and, and you're listening to this and you're like, dude, that's the, that's the last thing I wanna be told to do right now. Okay, just, I'm asking you, just stay with me, okay? And hopefully we can, we can clean this word up a bit. Not, not I'm, and I'm hesitant to even use that phrase because I, I don't want to like wash away the meaning of the word. But instead I wanna give clarity to what I think the intention of repentance was meant to be in the first place. At the same time, I know, I know that there's others of us who feel a little bit more at home at church. And when we hear repentance, it's like, okay, cool. Like I've, I've heard that before. I do that. Like it's a, it's a box I check. Like I, I repent on a consistent basis. Like, you know, it's something simple that we do. We've heard this sermon, right? Like, are we almost done? You know, I'm ready to go. Like Chipotle's waiting, right? But if I'm being honest, I think if, if, if that's our posture, 
if that's the mentality, if that's where our mind goes instantly when we hear the word repent, then it might be because we've watered down the idea of repentance to basically just meaning apologizing. Am I wrong? Just like the skin of an onion is in fact a part of, but not the entire thing. What comes to mind for many of us when we hear the word repentance or what we practically do when we are aiming to repent isn't necessarily wrong, but it's incomplete. It's not the whole thing. And I'm convinced that for many of us, when we've been living out our understanding of repentance, we've, we find ourselves not getting the results that we hope for, right? We, we live out what we've come to understand as repentance, and we think it just means apologizing, and we're getting the same results as if we're just cooking with just the skin of an onion. But there's more. There's got to be more, right? Like you sin, don't you? I, I do. <laughs> Not that I'm proud of it or anything, right? Not that you should be either, but the reality is we all do. We all do things that we shouldn't do, and we all don't do things that we should. And so what is the appropriate response? You're like, I, I don't want to say it. I feel like I'm going to be wrong. To repent. That's right. Like, to, to repent is absolutely, like, I want to be very clear about this. Like, repentance absolutely is the appropriate response to sin, but to leave our definition of repentance as merely telling God that we're sorry isn't the only thing that Jesus calls us to when he calls us to repent. And if we just stop and, I mean, all, all we have to do is take a moment, pause, take a step back and, and, and think about the, the significance of this word in its context and we'll realize like that can't be all that he meant. Like just picture it, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like I was saying at the beginning, there's times where we read these phrases. We've heard this phrase. Like we, 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 we get these phrases as bumper stickers. We, we know, oh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know this stuff. But just think of the weight of what Jesus is communicating in this statement. Like Jesus is coming on the scene and he announces that God, the creator and sustainer of all things, is through him ushering in his kingdom. That through him, through Jesus, all that has gone wrong in the world is going to be made right. That the prophecies and the predictions that for hundreds and hundreds of years were made about this coming Messiah was actually being fulfilled in their midst. Jesus is saying that God himself is going to rule and reign over all things, all peoples for all time. That he was going to establish his, his perfect eternal kingdom in them through Jesus in their midst. This is a huge statement. And so Jesus summarizes what he wants us to do in light of all of this in repent. There's no way he means like all of this. So tell God you're sorry, right? Like that can't be it. That simply cannot be all that God is trying to say here. Again, Matthew 4.17 is like a summary of Jesus' purpose and, and teachings throughout the gospel of Matthew. And if you were to go on and read Jesus' other teachings of the kingdom of God, like, like throughout the gospels, it become clear that the ultimate aim of Jesus' life and ministry is so much more than people who claim to be his followers feeling bad about their sin. There's more to it than that. There has to be more to it than that. And, and, and listen, I have no interest and diminishing the importance of acknowledging and admitting our sin to God. Please, whatever you do, do not hear me saying that. The skin of an onion, to use that terrible analogy that I used earlier, is in fact a part of the onion. 
Just like asking God for forgiveness is definitely, without a doubt, an aspect of repentance. But at the same time, I have, I have no interest in settling for a half-hearted understanding of what God is calling his followers to because we have misconceptions about what it means to fully repent either. I don't have any interest in either of those things. And so if, if it isn't something that we're supposed, that's just supposed to stir up negative emotions and it's more than simply an apology, then what does repentance actually mean? Well, to get to the heart of a word, you gotta break down its original meaning and its original language, right? And so the Greek word, that we translate to here to repent is meta, uh, stay with me, meta noeo. Okay, full disclosure here. If you couldn't tell, Greek's not my first language. Um, I only know about enough of it to be really, really dangerous. And so my pronunciation, for sure, less than perfect. Let's try it together so I feel better about myself. Meta, oh no, I can't even get it out for you. Meta noeo. Say that, meta noeo. See, it's harder than it sounds, right? All right, so two parts to it. You've got meta and you've got that wild second part, okay? So meta, meta is a prefix that means like movement or change. And then noeo is easier to say on its own. Noeo refers to the mind and its thoughts, perceptions, and dispositions and purposes. Meta, noeo. And so in short, when you bring those parts together, to repent in a literal sense means the internal changing of one's mind, okay? The internal changing of one's mind. And it's, and it's not just, you know, this, in a sense of, of making a different decision. Like, oh, I was gonna have frosted flakes, but then I had lucky charms. Like, that's, that's not the type of decision changing that we're talking about, but instead like a rewiring of our, our thoughts, our desires, our disposition, and, and, and a rewiring of our very selves. The first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. And I think he's right. Okay, repentance should be more than some words that we recite. It should be a, a posture that we adopt. And the implications of when we actually like repent go way beyond just what we think as well. Repentance should be a way of, of life, a, a, a changing of our, our very selves that influences our heads, to be sure, but, but our hearts and our, and our hands. For Christians, there's always a relationship between genuine repentance and new behavior. You cannot have one without the other. For example, in Luke 3, John the Baptist calls those he was baptizing to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, he says in verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then in the following verses, the onlooking crowd asks, what then shall we do? Okay, they don't ask, what then shall we think? How then should we feel? They're not asking like, okay, what then should we pray? They say, what then should we do? They understood this. New actions would be the consequence of genuine repentance every time. Verse 11, he answered them. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, also asked him, and, what, and we, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. And so yes, by definition, to repent is to change one's mind. But without a change of a heart, a change of actions, I do not think that the New Testament authors would be open to calling that, that, that repentance authentic. Do you see why this matters? In church, we say things, we, we rightly say things that the, like the only two requirements of becoming a Christian are, are faith and repentance. Have you ever heard that said before? Like just believe in Jesus and repent of your sin. And again, that's not wrong. But if we aren't clear about our definitions, we might be in danger of communicating something that's incomplete. When it comes to belief, Jesus' own brother James reminds us that even the demons believe truths about Jesus, Right? Demons probably have better theology than any of us in the room. And when it comes to repentance, if it's a mere uttering of some words that show remorse of wrongdoing, I mean, like we all have consciences. We all like make mistakes and and feel bad, most of us at least, feel bad about it. And so while it's true that the only requirements of becoming a Christian are faith and repentance, if we water what we mean by that down to, you know, pass the Bible quiz and say you're sorry, then then we end up with people who confidently rock a Christian title without living a Christian lifestyle. I know, I know countless people who will tell you, yeah, like Jesus is the son of God. Of course he is. Like who else would he be, right? And at the same time, they're genuine, like, you know, generally speaking, good people. They feel remorse for the wrong they've done in their lives. But, but they fail to see the need to actually change their ways. They don't see why it's important for them to actually alter their lifestyles or, or actually, like it says in the New Testament, become new in order to genuinely follow Jesus. But <laughs> this is a major problem. While faith and repentance are all that is necessary to be a Christian, in order to be a Christian, like, like it, by definition, to be a Christian is to be a little Christ, faith and repentance in the truest sense are absolutely necessary Like they're all that's required, but they are absolutely required. See, the belief that demons have doesn't lead to a changed heart, changed actions. The life of a demon doesn't mirror that of of Jesus and his heart and his desire for the world, right? And so if that's true, then this can't possibly be the same kind of belief that we expect from genuine followers of Jesus. It simply can't be mere affirmation of good doctrine that we call people to. In the same way, if... The the repentance that should come as a result of acknowledging the arrival of God's kingdom should lead to a new mind, new heart, new way of life. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. You see, this is the fruit that John the Baptist was calling his, his followers, those he was baptizing to bear. And how were they supposed to do it? It wasn't by their own strength. It wasn't by, you know, mustering up more effort. It wasn't through feeling super, super guilty. It was in keeping with repentance. It was a matter of the head, the heart, and the hands. This is so crucial. We've got to move away from just seeing repent and automatically thinking, you know, I'm the worst and I owe God an apology and nothing more. But at the same time, Understanding the the depth of what it is to genuinely repent through this lens breathes clarity and breathes life into every other verse that uses the word repentance as well. Like Ezekiel 14, verse six, God says, therefore, 
Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Like these aren't two things, two separate things that God is calling these people to, as if they were first to repent and then turn away from idols. See, the actions of turning away from these things is the repentance that God was calling them to. Like, for example, it's like when I like tell my boys, like, hey, guys, I need, I need you to, to listen to your coach and do what she says. Listen to your coach, do what she says. Those aren't, those aren't two separate things. I want them to show that they've listened to their coach by doing what she says, right? It's the same here. Or take 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21. Paul says, I fear that when I come again, God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He's not saying that he may have to mourn over the people who haven't felt bad or admitted their faults to God. Like how would he even know if people had done this or not? He can't, right? And so that can't be it. He's potentially mourning over them because there hasn't been genuine change in their actions. With no change of actions, there's been no genuine repentance. And so repentance, by definition, is for sure a matter of the mind. And it's pretty clear from almost every passage with the word in it that it's a matter of a person's actions. But then in Revelation 2, it makes it clear that it's also a matter of the heart. Revelation 2, verses 2 and 3, Jesus is actually commending the church in Ephesus. He's, he's saying good things about them. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, I read this, these verses, and it seems to me like they have the right mentality, it seems to me like they're doing the right things. They have the right actions, right? But then you get to verse four. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And then what is his response? What is the command that he gives them in order to change the disposition of their hearts? I'll give you one guess. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Everyone's favorite word, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So look, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that repentance has nothing to do with ask, asking for forgiveness. Like clearly that is an aspect of it. Jesus elsewhere specifically teaches us that his followers are absolutely to ask God for forgiveness. The most straightforward example is probably the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. But to talk about repentance without talking about the implications of how it's directly connected to our mind, our heart, our lifestyle, our actions, to do that is a mistake. When we rightly see repentance for what Jesus intended for it to be, we see that there's a, a, bigger, a bigger purpose. There's more depth to it than just forgiveness. See, instead, of, instead we see repentance, or instead we see that repentance is actually the most reasonable thing that we're able to do in light of or in partnership with or in preparation for this kingdom of God that Jesus is here initiating 
You see, it's through the changing of our mind that God gives us the wisdom to choose what is in alignment with his will. It's through the reshaping of our heart that God molds our passions and our desires to match his own. And it's through living out these new actions that we're able to actually live the life to the full that Jesus came to provide. And all of this is brought about as a result of our repentance. And so while Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 4 that, G- that God's kingdom is at hand, two chapters later, again, in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's tension. It's already here, but it's not yet fully recognized or fully fulfilled. And so even though God's kingdom is already initiated in part, it's equally clear from Matthew 6. Again, it's not here in full and so as we live in the tension of the already and the not yet of God's kingdom, we're, fa- we're to faithfully respond in Jesus' call on our lives through, through genuine, continual repentance. I came across, uh, I came across this quote while utilizing one of, the, uh, one of the great theological resources of our time, um, Instagram. And I've, uh, I've modified it a bit to be a little more applicable to our context of what we're talking about here. But here's what it basically said, okay? It says, guilt holds us to the past, but through repentance, Jesus takes away our guilt and frees us from our past. Shame keeps us paralyzed in the present, but through repentance, Jesus offers love and accepts us in the moment and enables us to be present with joy. Anxiety creates fear about the future. But through repentance, Jesus gives us confidence and hope for our future so that we can move forward. And so in light of all of this, let's repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, worship team, you can go ahead and and, and come back up. You see, as you continue to go through the book of Matthew, I'm, I'm confident that you'll continue to see and learn and understand the implications of this, this truth that Jesus, Jesus um, introduces here in verse 17 about his inbreaking rule and reign. But at least for now, my hope is that in light of who Jesus is and all that he has done, is doing, and will one day do, my hope is that we would appropriately respond by changing our minds by adopting God's heart, by reorienting our goals and our purposes, that we would actually alter our lifestyles and all of this in order to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, it's my hope that in the truest sense, we would repent, not out of guilt, not because apologizing is the the mystery ingredient in God's secret sauce to a better life, But because when Jesus calls us to repent, he calls us to something that is good. He calls us into this this story that he has been writing for thousands of years. He calls us to be co-laborers with him as he establishes his kingdom and reconciles all things to himself. This isn't a call to begrudgingly acknowledge your wrongs before an angry judge who wants to punish you. Repentance is an opportunity to change your mind and bring your heart, bring your life and to closer alignment with a loving father who wants nothing more than the absolute best, nothing else but the absolute best for you, for me, and for our world. And remember, just like in everything with God, through repentance, there is always more. God always has more on offer. There's more life to be lived, more joy to be had, more love to be experienced. And even when this life comes to an end, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and chosen to genuinely, genuinely repent, 
there will be even more still. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are who you are, that you've done what you've done, that you're doing what you're doing, and that you will do what you will one day do. Jesus, thank you that, that you saw fit not just to, to write the story of the Old Testament, but to, to come to earth, to dwell in our midst, and to bring that story to its, to its fullness by, by, by dying in our place for our sin, just like you promised, just like the prophets predicted. God, thank you so much that that story is, although completely written, God, it is, it is not fully finished. God, you now invite us to repent to turn from our, our ways that are in rebellion against you and to instead turn to the more that you have on offer as a result of you dying in our place for our sin. So God, help us. Help us to see who it is that you're calling us to be and help us to appropriately respond with our, our thoughts in our hearts and, and, and through our lives. God, life, life to the full is on offer. You've extended that to us, and um, all we have to do is repent, put our faith in you, and, fi and, and walk with you in that life that you died in our place in order to provide. So thank you, God. Lord, as we go into this time of worship, help us to worship you as you deserve. And as we go from here, God, help us to um, walk in the good works that you've established for us to walk in since the foundations of the earth. Help us to be who you've created us to be and do what you call us to do. And in the truest sense, in light of your kingdom, God, help us to repent. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.